to the upper room. And the reality is that the, the followers of Jesus had 50 short days in which to adjust to all of the real reasons Jesus came. You know, the, the disciples didn't understand the cross. They didn't understand uh, the, the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to establish. And they went from, from that very uh, misunderstood position to being overwhelmed at the resurrection of Jesus and then having this short period of time in which to kind of get it all right. And then they were going to have the, the experience on the day of Pentecost and go out into the world and continue the, the work of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. And I, I liken this uh, time of preparation to what it must have been like for some of our military men in the, in the uh, years gone by when a draft was, uh, was put into effect. And my understanding is that the shortest length of time that ever uh, a, uh, a group of men had to actually prepare from, from their receiving their draft notice to actually marching uh, was a period of about nine to eleven days, something like that. It was during the uh, sometime during the Civil War, shortly after Gettysburg. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to be a man going about my normal activities, my normal responsibilities, and then to get the notice that I'm going to be called up to serve uh, a, a time of military duty, and then to have only about 10 days in which to prepare and find that I'm then marching to war. I would feel very unprepared. And I can imagine that's uh, something of what the disciples felt as they were transitioning between this time of going from the empty tomb to the upper room and then, and then going out into the world to continue the work of Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, we began talking about this and uh, said first, they needed to be reassured in order to believe again. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but this whole cross and crucifixion thing was not in their minds of something that was supposed to happen to their Messiah. They needed to be re reassured in order, in order to believe. They needed to be reminded of their call in order to follow again. Shortly after the resurrection of Christ, they knew that Jesus was alive again from the dead, but we see Peter and about six others of the disciples saying, we're going fishing. You know, we're not sure what's going to happen now. We're just kind of going to go back to, to what we know, what we're familiar with. And as part of that story, one of the things we see is that Jesus is reminding them of their original commitment, their original calling, so that they will again renew their commitment to follow him. They needed re-teaching or re-taught. I don't know if that's a good uh, a, a good, goodly use of grammar. Probably not. But they needed to be re-taught so they would embrace the cross. 
as Jesus in his earthly ministry is telling them that what he is all about, what he's here for, is to go to the cross. We see Peter standing up in front of him and saying, no, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. They needed to see the teaching of Christ in light of the cross. They need to be retaught so they would embrace the cross and what the cross meant. As I continue to look at all that transpired between uh, the resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb, and the upper room, the day of Pentecost, I see also that they needed to learn to love each other. They needed to learn to love each other. If I could invite your attention this morning to John's gospel in chapter 13. John chapter 13. We will read verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. One another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It's interesting, the word love is used only 12 times in the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, John 1 through John 12. It only occurs about 12 times. But in The last part, beginning with John 13 through John 21, it's used 44 times. It is a key word and concept in Jesus' farewell address to his disciples, and it's one of the burdens that he prays to his Father about in his high priestly prayer, which is recorded in chapter 17. In these verses that we read this morning, when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, he's not talking about new in respect of time. He's not saying this is something that you've never done before, you've never known that you ought to love each other, and so I'm giving you a new commandment. No, they love and loving each other, loving neighbor had long been an important quality and behavior amongst God's people. But here in this passage, the idea of a new commandment means new in experience. It would mean the opposite of worn out. It would mean to love each other in a fresh way, a new way. Jesus had been showing them love and showing them what love looked like for about three years in his earthly ministry. But they would not fully understand the kind of love that Jesus was talking about until they saw it in the light of the cross, in the light of his crucifixion. The followers of Jesus, these these now 11 men, I didn't mention that, but uh, verse 31 Uh, begins by saying, when he had gone out, that he, that's Judas. Judas left at that point, and Jesus is now addressing the 11. And these were 11 men plus Jesus that had been 
literally living together, walking together, eating together uh, for three years' time. And I'm certain in that amount of time, they had developed some affection, at least some friendship for one another. But when we pause to ask the question, did they really love each other the way Jesus is calling them to love and the way Jesus calls us to love each other, I really don't think they demonstrated the kind of love that Jesus is calling for. We see them bickering with one another over who is going to be the most important in the kingdom of God. And those are the kinds of things that we read about in the scripture. But if we want to dig into kind of reading between the lines, which you, you should be careful about doing, but I think it's, it's fair to say that in some cases we can read between the lines of Scripture and speculate on what may have gone on. One of the things that we see in the followers of Jesus, we have people like Matthew, who was a Jew, yes, but he was also a tax collector, and he would have been seen as something of a co-conspirator with the Romans, And the other Jews would not have thought very highly of that. You also have another Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot. And having these two, I hope you will excuse this comparison, but having these two in one group, Matthew the, uh, the, the tax collector and Simon the zealot, that would have probably been something like having a, a MAGA conservative and a progressive Democrat at one table in one group of friends, and you can imagine what kind of friction happens amongst those two groups of people. You can smile, it's okay. Everybody relax. You have Peter, who I, when I read scripture, I can't think of Peter as anything except somewhat of a big mouth. I mean, Peter, of all of the disciples, Uh, seems to have been the first to engage in really believing and trusting in Christ. We see him riding in the ship and uh, Jesus coming to them, walking on the water, and none of the other disciples said what Peter said, but Peter said, Lord, if that's really you out there, you call to me and I'm going to step out and come to you walking on the water. He was the first to really express his faith, but, but all throughout the scripture, I can imagine that there were others in the disciples. I'm sure there were introverts in, in that group of 12. And um, as an introvert myself, I can imagine what those introverted disciples must have said and thought about Peter. Peter's such a big mouth. All of these dynamics that I'm sure took place amongst that group of men, followers of Jesus. But the most telling thing that we see is the incident that precedes our text at the beginning of John chapter 13. They're they're coming into the upper room where they are about to partake of the, the, the Last Supper, the Passover meal with Jesus. And they don't uh, have uh, the financial means to have a servant or a slave there. So as they walk through the door, very conspicuously there is a basin of water and a towel. 
and uh, according to the custom of the time, it was there so that those who had been walking in their sandaled feet through the heat and the dust and the dirt of the day, and perhaps sometimes mud and muck like we have outside here today, uh, there would have been, uh, if there were financial means, there would have been a servant there to wash feet. Without the means to have a servant, it would have fallen to one of the group to take it upon themselves and wash feet. Well, these are guys who just prior to walking into this room on their way, they've been arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Nobody that's been arguing about who's going to be the greatest then wants to say, oh, here, let me take the role of servant and wash your feet. Nobody wants to do that. And so we see Jesus then taking the towel and the basin and walking to each one of them, taking the role of the slave, the role of the servant, and washing their feet. And then at the end of this chapter, we hear Jesus saying, a new commandment give I unto you. You love one another the way that I have loved you. How did Jesus reveal his love to his disciples? It was a, it was a servile love. We just mentioned the story, a, a willingness to lay aside position, and Jesus himself said it in verses 12 through 17. He, he says to them, do you understand what I've done here? If I, your Lord and Master, and, and that is who I am, that is what I am, if I have humbled myself before you to take on the role of a servant and wash your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. It was a universal kind of love because this took place prior to Judas leaving the group and Jesus knew who it was that would betray him and just like Peter and Andrew and James and John and all the others, Jesus knelt in front of Judas to wash his feet. It was a universal kind of love. It was an equalizing love. We read through the scripture about the, the uh, kind of the concentric rings of fellowship around Jesus. There was a very large group of disciples, people that followed Jesus. And then there was the 12, the 12 that Jesus chose uh, specifically to be apostles. Within that group of 12, there was an inner circle of three Three that were the only ones to, to be invited up on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and see Jesus in his glory. But then within that group of three, there was one who we assume to be John, the, the writer of this gospel, John the Beloved, who is referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. And in this setting, Jesus doesn't 
serve one over another. We don't see him uh, giving any favoritism, but he treats each one equally, universally, an equalizing love. Not only was it a servile love, but it was a submissive love. A submissive love. Look, if you will, at John chapter 15 and verse 9. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is a picture of a submissive kind of love. Jesus speaks about keeping commandments. And he says, if you will keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments. Jesus came in a role that was submitting to his father's will. And he calls us to that same kind of submission. It is an abiding love. You know, abiding and and submitting kind of goes together. You can't really abide. To abide means to, to settle down and be content and be comfortable somewhere. And that really calls for an attitude of submission. Submission to your circumstances. Submission to, to the authorities in your life. An attitude of submission. You cannot be uh, abiding. You cannot be content and comfortable if you're wrestling and resisting either the circumstances of your life or, or the authorities in your life or what you are called to do. Abiding. It is, it is obedient as well. That's one of the things that we get from submission. Even Jesus was obedient to his Father's commands. He calls us to the same. It was also joyful. Submissive love is a joyful kind of love. What do you mean? How can, how can submission... And, and by the way, I don't know whether any of you are thinking this or not. Maybe you are. I'm an overthinker. And so my, my brain is always telling me what people are thinking when probably that's not what they're thinking at all. I've learned this, but anyway. Some of you may be thinking that this, this favorite Bible verse of many husbands, you know, that, that verse in Ephesians 5 that says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Um, but let me remind you, guys, if that is your favorite verse... Wives, let me encourage you with this. What the Bible actually teaches is a mutual submission. In the the chapter prior, the end of Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us that we are to not be drunk with wine, but to be filled or controlled with the Holy Spirit, uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, and submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. 
loving each other the way Christ loved us calls for this attitude of submission. And it's not just being a doormat, but rather it's laying aside your own feelings and desires for the sake of the one that you love. Mothers often give us beautiful examples of this. A teacher asked a, a boy this question, a, a math question, a question about fractions. She's, the, the question was this, suppose your mother baked a pie and there were seven of you, mom, dad, and five children. What portion of the pie would you receive? And the little boy said, one-sixth we'd get one-sixth. And that teacher said, oh, I'm afraid you don't know your fractions very well. Remember, there are seven of you. You should get a seventh. Yes, ma'am, the boy said, but you don't know my mother. Mother would say she didn't want any pie. You see, moms are beautiful pictures of setting aside their wants, their desires, their feelings for the sake of the ones that they love. It is a servile love. It is a submissive love. It's also a second-hand love. I'm uncomfortable with using this word, but l- let me explain to you what I mean. When I, when I say second-hand, I, I don't mean like something that you might find worn out at a thrift store or a yard sale. John chapter 17, verse 26, Jesus says this, I made known to them, he's praying, Jesus is talking to his father. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Another verse that we might look at would be John chapter 1. Uh, verses 16 through 18. John chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, that is Jesus, has made him known. So you see, We sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and that is true. Jesus loves us, but his love is also a second-hand love. It is not simply the love of Christ himself, but it is also the love of God, our Father, who Jesus serving as a channel or a conduit. The love of God flows through Christ to you and to me. You see, Jesus is the complete revelation of the Father. And so many people look at their Old Testaments and they see a picture of a, of a God, a father figure who is unkind and harsh and critical and who has a standard that they can never live up to. And they think if that is God, I I don't want that. And then they see Jesus in the New Testament and they think, oh, I'm so glad for Jesus who came and kind of changed God's mind about me. But friends, can I just tell you that is not the story that Scripture tells? Our Father who is revealed to us in the Old Testament is the same God who is revealed to us through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. 
We have a heavenly Father who loves us, who loved us so much that he gave heaven's best on our behalf. And Jesus is the complete revelation of the Father, a Father who loves us. Jesus is the conduit or the channel uh, through which the Father's love comes to us. And we are called to be a revelation of the Father's love to the world around us. As I have loved you, Jesus says, you love each other. One Sunday, a lady was inviting children to come to Sunday school when she met a little boy and asked him uh, about coming. And she said, no, I go to another church some distance away for Sunday school. And she realized that the church, the place where this little boy was going to, was quite some distance away. And that there were several other churches between where he lived and the church he was going. And... uh, She said, why do you go so far to go to Sunday school when there are so many other Sunday schools closer to where you live? There are plenty others just as good, she said. And the little boy said, well, they may be as good, but they're not as good for me. And the lady asked, well, why not? And he said, because they know how to love a fellow over there. And he was going some distance away because he'd found a church, he'd found a Sunday school, he'd found a place where God's people were showing him real love. And friends, that's exactly what you and I are called to. It's what the followers, the disciples of Jesus are called to, to be conduits, to be channels of love to the people that are around us. But finally, notice it is a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love. John chapter 15 and verse 13. Jesus says in verse 12 of John 15, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, than that you would lay down your life for your friends. Friends, the love of Jesus is a love that is willing to sacrifice even its own life, if necessary, for the benefit of the loved one, if if that is called for, if that is needed. You see, the love that our world is familiar with and the love that you may read about uh, in, in a romance novel or that you see portrayed on the television or in a movie is, is not godly love at all. What you see portrayed in popular culture around us is the kind of so-called love that is interested only in satisfying or pleasing itself. It is a love that is turned inward and looking at what can I do for me and how can you help satisfy my wants and my desires and my needs, so-called. But godly love, the love Jesus calls us to, is not a self-focused, self-centered love, but it is a love that is focused outward on those that are around us, a servile, submissive, and a sacrificial love. As the second century of Christianity began to unfold, the faith of Christianity had spread throughout the Roman Empire and particularly to some of its great cities like Rome and Carthage 
in North Africa. At that time, Christians were the objects of great suspicion from their neighbors and government officials because they had given up the behaviors of their previously pagan lifestyle to live a lifestyle that was completely foreign to the people that are around them. And in some cases, wild rumors had begun to circulate about what Christians actually taught and did in their meetings. And so in order to clear the air and to defend the good name of Christianity, a church leader in Carthage named Tertullian wrote a brief explanation of Christian practices and a critique of the accusations that were being made against them. And in his writing, he wrote at one point that these attacks against uh, Christianity were made out of jealousy because Christians displayed a character of life that their pagan neighbors did not possess and knew nothing about. And here's what he wrote. He said, it is mainly the deeds of love, a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. They say, see how they love one another for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred how they are ready even to die for one another they say they're the pagans talking about christians they're ready even to die for one another but they themselves would sooner put to death than be put to death and friends this was the rep- the reputation that christians had amongst the world shortly after the life and ministry of Jesus. People looking on saying, see how they love one another. The climactic moment for Jesus' demonstration of love came on the cross. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on our behalf. In his letter of 1 John, he wrote here in his love, 1 John 4, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus' love is a servile, a submissive, a second-hand love. It is a sacrificial love and he calls his followers to the same kind of love in thinking about how to close this message i was thinking a couple days ago about how some children love their favorite stuffed animal or their favorite blanket perhaps some people love their pets, and thinking, you know, how is it that something, you know, I remember you, some of you may have read the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. Anybody, you, re, you read the story of the Velveteen Rabbit, a couple of you? Um, beautiful story, and if you've never read children's stories with an eye for theological truth, well, let me invite you to go back and do that sometime you'll see some interesting, some interesting truths demonstrated there. The Velveteen Rabbit is a story of a little boy with a stuffed rabbit who, who gets sick 
And he loves that rabbit very much, but he gets sick with scarlet fever. And because of the scarlet fever, all of his toys and everything in his room is to be taken away and burned and destroyed, including the velveteen rabbit. And uh, the, uh, the, the doctor says, well, just get, get him another rabbit. Get him a different one. But, you know, there's nothing that can replace that one that has received all the love and the affection. You say, what is it? It's just, it's just an object. It's just a thing. We have, we have pets at our house. And as much as I like to think I'm not really that much of a pet person, um, one, of our, one of our doggies is a little older than the others and has had some physical problems lately and uh, I've at times been concerned off and on about that dog you say what is that you know if you're not a pet person you won't understand but you say that's just you know it's just an animal no it when you love something even if it's even if it's that child with their favorite teddy bear or blanket when you love something you invest your own love and affection into that object or into that pet, and it becomes something more than it otherwise was. You see, friends, this is what Jesus did for you and for me. He came and He loved us and there might be people who would look at you or look at me and say, they're nothing special. They're nobody special. Why would a God give himself and spend his love on, on somebody like that? But he does. He does it freely. He does it fully. And in the loving, the investing of his love, the sacrificial, submissive love of Jesus Christ we become something more than we otherwise could be. And you and I are called to love one another, first of all, with this same kind of love. And then from this setting, to go out into the world and continue to demonstrate that love. And Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. Amen. Let's stand together, please. Holy Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. Thank you for the full and free outpouring of that love through the sacrificial death of your Son on the cross. Father, we pray that you will help each one of us, first of all, to be willing recipients of your love, to receive it. And then, Lord, would you help us to learn how to lay aside differences and prejudices and the things that hinder our relationships and simply allow your love to flow through us. 
that we would love one another as you have loved us. And Father, for all that you do, we will thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.